Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I am Jake Tapper, and we start with breaking news in our national lead. Moments ago, the 15-year-old suspected gunman in that Michigan high school shooting appeared in court Prosecutors have charged Ethan Crumbly as an adult in the killing of four students in Oxford, Michigan. Prosecutors say they are considering charging his parents as well. Let's go straight to CNN's Adrian Broadus live for us in Oakland, Michigan. And Adrian, uh, moments before the court hearing, the sheriff released new details about how exactly the shooting unfolds. us. Tell us what you can. Well, Jake, moments ago, the sheriff revealed that school officials met with the parents of Ethan Crumbly the morning of the shooting for what they called, quote, behavior in the classroom they felt was concerning. The sheriff also told us the day before the shooting, staff here at the high school also met with that 15-year-old suspect for behavioral issues. Jake? And Adrian, today we're also learning more about the, the victims of this horrific crime. We are. We learned that those victims were shot in the hallway, according to the sheriff. The sheriff made it clear surveillance video shows the 15-year-old suspect in the hallway. The sheriff said the suspect did not enter the classroom. And we were with a family when they learned another teen, a student at this school, died. Another community devastated from a deadly shooting. I'm going to confirm the name of the suspect this one time only during this press conference as Ethan Crumbly, age 15. We want to keep our focus on the victims. The prosecutor laying out the charges today. We are charging this individual with one count of terrorism causing death, four counts of first-degree murder, seven counts of assault with intent to murder, and 12 counts of possession of a firearm and the commission of a felony. We've charged four counts of first-degree murder, which requires premeditation. And I am absolutely sure, after reviewing the evidence, that it isn't even a close call. It was absolutely premeditated. An Oxford, Michigan student shot 11 people, killing four. 17-year-old Madison Baldwin, 16-year-old Tate Meir, 14-year-old Hannah St. Juliana, and Justin Schilling, just 17 years old, died earlier today. A few miles from the school, the Pittman family grieves. I can't see Justin. I can't see two of my closest friends. During the shooting, Javon Pittman hid under a desk and called his dad for help. I was whispering because I didn't want the shooter to hear me and my classmates. And my dad was just asking me what's going on, what's happening. And I told him it's a shooting. Somebody's here shooting up the school. And then he told me, he said, okay, I'm on my way. Why your dad? Is he your superhero? Yes. <laughs> you can't save your kids. That's devastating. I'd rather been the one that got shot than my kids. 
This is the training the students never wanted to use. Yes, sheriff's office. Safe to come out. Teens sheltered in their classroom, barricading the entry. Close the door. We're not taking that risk right now. Okay, well, come to the door. Look at my bag, bro. No. Yeah, bro. He said bro. He said bro. Red flag. Students escaped through a window, running for their lives. Deputies soon let them know they were safe. We know um, by witnesses he, you know, was tugging on doors, and we know from physical evidence that he shot through doors. Authorities say the alleged shooter used a gun his father purchased four days prior. The prosecutor also announcing she is charging the 15-year-old as an adult. There are crimes that the legislature has said are so serious that a person who commits them can automatically be charged as an adult. There are facts leading up in the shooting that suggest this was not just an impulsive act. The family's left with a nightmare that for some will never end. I'm turning off the light. And I have my kids, but Sherry and Buck don't have teeth. I can turn off the light and know they're in the room, but there's some parents that that room is going to be empty. The, Pitt, the Pittman family is grateful their boys returned home, but they are still concerned about the other parents, knowing they will now have to plan funerals for their children. And they said to me today, no parent should outlive their child. And the last few minutes while that story was airing, we learned videos on the suspect's phone talked about shooting and killing students here at Oxford High School. That was according to a lieutenant who presented evidence just moments ago at the virtual arraignment for that 15-year-old suspect happening now. Jake. Adrian brought us in Oxford, Michigan. Thank you so much. The first case of the new Omicron coronavirus variant has been detected in the United States officially. What do you need to know about it? That's next. Later. Even the tiniest amount of this drug can kill users. Now there is a new way, however, to detect it. Stay with us. And we have some breaking news for you now. In our health lead, the inevitable has been confirmed. The new coronavirus variant Omicron has been detected in the United States, identified by health officials in the state of California. This is the variant spreads around the world. Now, clearly identified in nearly 30 countries. CNN is covering this new variant on multiple fronts. We have Dr. Sanjay Gupta with medical analysis. David McKenzie's in Johannesburg, South Africa, where this new variant was first detected. But we're going to start with CNN's Stephanie Elam in California, where the first case in the U.S. has now been confirmed. Stephanie, what do we know about the patient? Uh, what we know is that this is a person who traveled back from South Africa on November 22nd and then tested positive on the 29th, went ahead and got tested and then let uh, the contact tracers there in San Francisco let them know about their travel history and where they had just come from. Uh, what they are doing in San Francisco County is they have a very robust testing sy- uh, system and everyone who tests positive They then send it to the University of California, San Francisco, who then checks those positive tests to see what variant they are. In fact, take a listen to one of the doctors from UCSF about how quickly they moved on this. I I heard about it actually yesterday at um, at about 3 p.m. 
and we were able to receive the sample in the laboratory by 8 p.m. Uh, we ran a very fast molecular test which looks for uh, what we call spike gene dropout. We were able to confirm the detection of Omicron within five hours, and we had most of the genome within eight hours. And it's also worth noting here, we know that this passenger uh, has mild symptoms and is recovering and is fully vaccinated, but did not have a booster shot. They also said that the people around this traveler have tested negative, but they're saying the contact tracing here is key to actually getting on top of this and identifying this person and the fact that it was Omicron. Jake. All right, Stephanie Elam, thank you so much. This new case comes as the Biden administration is weighing tougher international travel rules. Instead of the current three-day rule to show a negative COVID test before coming to the U.S., the CDC is now considering making international travelers, including U.S. citizens, get a COVID test one day before flying to the United States and to get tested again after arriving in the United States. CNN's David McKenzie has more for us now from Johannesburg, South Africa. The U.S. was far from alone in finding its first case today. Norway, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria now say they too have detected cases of the variant. It should not surprise us. This is what viruses do. And it's what this virus will continue to do as long as we allow it to continue spreading. While scientists await data, South African doctors still say that most cases they see are mild and among younger patients and the unvaccinated. The CDC says it will tighten testing requirements for international arrivals in the U.S. from Southern Africa. They may soon have to provide proof of a negative test taken just one day before departure. And will have to share names of passengers entering the U.S. on flights from Southern Africa with government departments. It comes as FDA advisers voted to recommend authorizing the use of a pill made by Merck to treat people who already have COVID-19. India had been due to restart international flights in two weeks. The government has now called that off because of Omicron. Japan already banned foreigners yesterday. Now they are telling airlines not to take any new international arrival reservations, even from citizens. Due to host a major UN peacekeeping summit next week, South Korea now says it will be held entirely online as the country detects its first cases of the Omicron variant. The World Health Organization is again scolding countries for the blanket travel bans. Blanket travel bans will not prevent the international spread of Omicron, and they place a heavy burden on lives and livelihoods. South Africa's president agrees. This is a global pandemic. And overcoming it requires that we collaborate and work together as a collective. Research suggests that quarantines are more effective than blanket bans, which only had some impact when implemented at the very beginning of the pandemic. Well, if anything, those bans are being strengthened, Jake. And uh, Dr. Fauci said what happens here in South Africa over the next two weeks, two to three weeks, to see whether hospital admissions spike and what happens to vaccinated uh, patients with uh, Omicron will be key to understanding what might happen in the U.S. Jake? 
All right, David McKenzie reporting from Johannesburg, South Africa. Thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, to talk about this all. Sanjay, let's start with this first case of the Omicron variant identified in the U.S. in the San Francisco area. Dr. Fauci says this person was fully vaccinated, although uh, did not get a booster, traveled to the U.S. from South Africa last Monday, tested positive a week later, this past Monday, November 29th. We're told this person's symptoms are mild as of now. So what do you make of what we learned today? I think this was uh, this was expected, uh, Jake. I mean, you know, we live in a very globally interconnected world and and, uh, you know, air travel is is happening. And as you point out, this happened even before Omicron was named. I mean, we didn't know anything about this variant at the the time this person traveled. There were no travel restrictions in place. We do know the person got the Moderna vaccine, fully vaccinated with that. But as you mentioned, did not receive a booster. Uh, All the contacts of this person so far have been negative. And that's going to be an important point as well. How transmissible is this virus is a big question mark still. Uh, this will be some of the, the early clues, at least here in the United States, about how transmissible this is. You know, we look at what's happening in South Africa, what David was just describing, and we know they've gone through these various surges over time. But as Omicron was sort of starting in South Africa, there wasn't a lot of virus spread at that time. So Omicron really didn't have anything to compete against at that time. Different situation in the United States and much of Europe, where Delta is still predominant. Will Omicron um, sort of outcompete Delta? That still remains to be seen. But what happened so far, Jake, I think was really entirely expected. So the Biden administration is now proposing COVID tests required for all international travelers, including American citizens, including those who are vaccinated, right. down from three days before the trip to one day before the trip. Do you see? This is a sign that the government, the Biden administration, is increasingly worried about Omicron. Do you think that they're maybe overreacting, given that how little we know about it? I, I think that this is an indication of their concern. I, I don't know whether it's overreacting or just trying to be very proactive here. But, you know, on the CDC's website right now, still, uh, there is this um, a quote that says, basically, there's limited advantages to shortening the time period for testing for fully vaccinated air travelers. So they've, they've talked about this issue before, and they said, look, we don't see that there's much benefit here. And that's still on the website. But when we crunch the data, let me show you what we found. If you look at unvaccinated people, they have to have a test uh, within 24 hours of travel. And if you look at the overall impact on, re- on the risk reduction, it does make a difference from between 72 hours and 24 hours. That's the left side of the screen. For vaccinated, it's, yeah, there's a little bit of a benefit, but not much. So for not much benefit, they're considering doing this, which I think, to your point, Jake, uh, sort of speaks to their level of concern on this. Same day PCR or antigen tests, they're not cheap, um, but are they reliable uh, given how long it can take to to show COVID symptoms? This is a very interesting point. So PCR tests are still the the gold standard and, and they're reliable for answering the question, do you have virus in your body? Symptomatic, not symptomatic. Is there presence of virus? Uh, that's the gold standard. Antigen tests, which again, are, can be these rapid tests, you get it back the same day, within 15 minutes even, they're answering a different question, which is, how likely are you to be contagious? So the scenario there is, hey, I feel fine. I don't think I have the virus, but I'm about to go and be in some situation. I want to make sure. So I take the antigen test to see if I'm contagious. And they're really good at that. They may miss virus, presence of virus, but they're highly accurate at determining whether someone's contagious. And Sanjay, as David McKenzie noted in the piece we just aired, uh, most Omicron cases in South Africa have been 
mild. They've been among younger patients, among the unvaccinated. What, what do you read into that combo? I, I think the, the, the most optimistic thing we've now heard from South Africa and from Israel is that um, most of what they've seen in terms of cases and, and illness has been in the unvaccinated, which speaks to the efficacy of the vaccinated. We still got to get more data on that, but so far the signals have been good on that. I think it's a little too early to tell just how much severe, how, how severe the illness will be in people uh, in, in larger populations. If you look at Kwateng province where, you know, in Johannes, where Johannesburg is located and just look at hospitalizations over the last three weeks, they've gone up. Now, again, they're starting at a very quiet time. This is sort of late spring for them, Jake. So not a lot of respiratory pathogens, not a lot of hospitalizations, but they have gone up. Is this related to, to Omicron or, or not? That's one of, the, one of the questions they have to answer. We'll know a lot more in two weeks, I guess. Let's turn yeah. to some good news. We, we could soon see the first oral medication in the U.S. to treat COVID. An FDA advisory panel just voted 13 to 10 to endorse the Merck pharmaceutical antiviral pill. Now it will be up to the FDI to, FDA to decide yes or no on whether or not to grant emergency use authorization. Uh, a yes vote would be significant. Yeah, I, I think it would be significant. But, you know, I think it's always important to show this data here. First of all, you mentioned 13 to 10 was the vote. So this was not a slam dunk. But let me show you what the data actually showed. Median age of the people who were getting the pill was 43 years old. Big, biggest risk factor was obesity. The scenario is someone's been diagnosed. They're at high risk of maybe needing hospitalization. They would take these pills. If they got a placebo, 59 people in this trial were hospitalized, nine died. They got the medication, 47 were hospitalized, one died. In terms of hospitalization, that's a 30% risk reduction. So it's significant, uh, but it's not a slam dunk. Monoclonal antibodies, which are sort of designed for the same thing but require an infusion, have about a 70% uh, reduction in risk of going to the hospital. So, yeah, it's, it's important. It's an oral pill. You can take it at home. That's a big deal. But hopefully there's going to be even more effective oral antivirals coming down the pike. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Good to see you. And you can hear more from Sanjay tonight in a special CNN Global Town Hall, along with Dr. Anthony Fauci. That's tonight at 9 o'clock Eastern here on CNN. President Biden making big promises about holiday shopping, but will Americans get what they want? Stay with us. In our money lead today, President Biden addressed the nightmare before Christmas supply chain issues and a brand new COVID variant. CNN senior White House correspondent Phil Mattingly asked President Biden about his predictions on the economy to find a mixed bag. Those shelves are going to be stocked. With price increases sitting at a three-decade high, President Biden finally touting progress on one of the driving factors, supply chain bottlenecks. The CEOs I met with this week reported that their inventories are up, shelves are well-stocked, and they're ready to meet the consumer demand for the holidays. It's been an urgent issue inside the White House for weeks as officials scramble for ways to ease inflationary pressures that carry significant economic and political repercussions. I've used every tool available to address the price increases, and it's working. We've seen the price of oil and gasoline on the wholesale markets come down significantly. All as a new COVID variant now detected in the United States, carries the potential to undercut it all in just a matter of weeks. Much has a of concern that the new variant will end up exacerbating the very issues on supply chains your team has been working on the last several months? Well, look, um, you know me. I'm an optimist. Um, what we have seen so far 
does not guarantee that's the outcome. Am I concerned? Of course I am until we get the final answers. The Omicron variant driving a roller coaster four days in the stock market, with Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell raising alarm. The recent rise in COVID-19 cases and the emergence of the Omicron variant pose downside risks to the employment and economic activity and increased uncertainty for inflation. It's a perfect storm of uncertainty, both economic and in public health, at a critical moment for Biden on Capitol Hill as a crush of deadlines face lawmakers with no clear pathways forward just yet. We need to come together and keep the government open. Lawmakers scrambling to fund the government before a December 3rd deadline, as a potential default looms if the debt ceiling isn't raised by December 15th, with Biden and Senate Democrats targeting a Christmas deadline to pass Biden's sweeping $1.75 trillion economic and climate package. Now it's time to build on our success and cut costs further for families. That's what my Build Back Better plan does. Leaving the White House at the center of a high-stakes moment on Capitol Hill and in the battle with the pandemic, with advisors planning to tighten testing guidelines for travelers entering the U.S. as they urgently work to craft vaccine contingency plans in the event of a worst-case scenario with the new variant. We may not need a variant-specific boost. We're preparing for the possibility that we need a variant-specific boost. And Jake, for a White House that has been on defense for months as it relates to inflation, the signs of some easing of those supply chain pressures have coincided with a very shift in message from the president himself, a sharper tone trying to really attack Republicans to some degree as just standing in the way of things. It's been something Democrats on Capitol Hill have been quietly asking the White House to shift towards for several weeks. Now the president clearly trying to parlay that message of progress into political messaging as well, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Let's discuss this with Democratic Senator Tim Kaine from the Commonwealth of Virginia. So, Senator, there are some positive economic signs in terms of joblessness, but as I'm sure you hear from your constituents, Americans feel pessimistic about the economy. They're dealing with inflation. How do you reconcile that? Well, Jake, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty. You're right, you're seeing joblessness come down. That's great. The new unemployment claims, very, very positive. The administration has created record numbers of jobs uh, during this year, but uh, people still are uncertain. The news about the pandemic worries them, as it should. Uh, My belief is as vaccines continue to accelerate, and now we're doing boosters and we're vaccinating America's young people, that will enable us to get safer and safer. Um, And here on the Hill, the best thing we can do is show the American public that we're taking action that can have a direct positive impact on their lives. President Biden today tried to temper concerns about gas prices. He said, quote, I have not been content to sit back and wait. Are are you concerned that, that Democrats are running out of time when it comes to dealing with these significant economic issues out there? Uh, ahead of the midterms. You know, Jake, I'm actually not worried about the the timing. These are big, tough issues, but my belief is this. If we do the the four sort of must-pass things we have before us, the, uh, the defense bill, funding government, debt ceiling, and the Build Back Better plan, the combined effect of Build Back Better uh, with the infrastructure bill uh, will create some real economic Uh, tailwinds that will be positive for the country going into the early part of next year. And I think that plus, again, the continuing acceleration of vaccines plus boosters plus children getting vaccinated, that could put us in a position as we get into spring, for example, where people are really feeling a sense of both health and economic uplift after two very difficult years. 
Yeah. Democratic Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney told Dana Bash yesterday that he agrees uh, with the sentiment that's been expressed that Democrats need to improve uh, your messaging about these big pieces of legislation that you have passed or are about to pass. And if not, it could cost your party control of the House and the Senate. Republicans, however, as you know, they say this is not just a messaging issue, that Biden policies are making things worse when it comes to economic uncertainty and inflation and and more. Well, look, I I do agree with um, with Sean, we've got to get better on the messaging. It's much easier to message the things you have passed than the things you're hoping to pass. So give you an example, Jake. Um, I have been going around Virginia talking about the infrastructure bill. Uh, had a, a speech before county officials two Mondays ago. And county officials in Virginia, there's more Republican counties than Democratic counties. So it was a heavily Republican audience. They are absolutely thrilled at this infrastructure bill because they can see whether it's road, rail, bridges, you know, electric transmission, broadband rollout, ports, airports. They've got critical need in their communities. We're going to be able to do the same uh, with the Build Back Better bill. And to the extent folks are worried about costs and inflation, Build Back Better will bring down prescription drug costs, bring down health care premiums. It'll make college more affordable. It will bring down child care costs, which is a huge concern for working parents, both because they want high-quality child care for their kids, but, but affordable child care makes it easier for them to rejoin the workforce. So this Build Back Better bill, which is fundamentally about education and workforce, has significant cost reductions mm-hmm. that will help Americans who are concerned about prices right now. So you talked about four bills uh, that you need to pass, and one of them is the, the government funding bill. But the government, as you know, it's going to shut down in just two days if that isn't passed. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said this afternoon that some Republicans are using, quote, obstructive tactics that will make a government shutdown almost a certainty. What specifically is happening is that there are Republicans uh, in the House and Senate who say that the Biden administration needs to drop the COVID vaccine mandates on private businesses if they want the government to be funded. What do you think is going to happen? Well, um, Jake, uh, Senator Schumer is right. I, I, we're in the middle of a debate on a defense bill that we should have finished before Thanksgiving. Uh, Republicans delayed it, claiming that they want more votes on amendments, although the amendments that we're offering them are already larger in this one defense bill than the amendments they allowed in all four years of defense bills under the Trump administration. So it, 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 it appears to some of us that they're taking even something like the defense bill and stretching it out to delay. We're going to stay in over the weekend and get this government funding bill done. As you point out, it runs out on the third. We're going to work through the weekend and get it done. But you're right, there are a couple of Republicans who are not content to vote against a vaccine mandate. They're saying unless they um, can, you know, even if they lose that vote, they're still going to stonewall funding the entire government of the United States because they didn't get what they wanted on one vote. That's bad faith. We got to fund this government um, and we're going to stay around until we do. Who are the couple of Republicans? You want to tell our viewers? Well, I, you know, I would rather not speak for those, but let those speak for themselves. Um, but I think you'll see as we get into this debate uh, on the continuing resolution later in the week, they'll come to the floor and make their case. Yeah. And again, let them vote no. But if they vote no and overwhelmingly their colleagues aren't with them, they shouldn't stand in the way of keeping the doors open in the United States government. Senator Tim Kaine from the great Commonwealth of Virginia, thanks so much. It is Absolutely. deadlier Then heroin, we're going to take a look at a key tool being used to prevent overdoses from the deadliest drug in America. Stay with us.
Today, part three of our series, United States of Addiction. While the U.S. has been in the throes of the pandemic, drug overdose deaths hit a record high, and oftentimes the drugs people think they're taking are really a dangerous mix of something else altogether. CNN's Sanjay Gupta is back with a close look at testing methods growing in popularity to keep more users alive. Tanya, who didn't want us to use her last name, has been using heroin off and on for more than 20 years. Lately, she says, each time feels like a real gamble. Put it in the cup, yes. And then you just pour it onto the dough. I use the end to stir it up. What you're watching is Tanya testing for the presence of the deadliest drug in America. And it just takes a small amount and you just dip it in. Between May of 2020 and April 2021, more than 100,000 people died from drug overdoses in the United States. That's the most ever for a 12-month period. But dig deeper, and you will see that this tragic story is almost entirely about fentanyl. People dying. What's scary is it's the smallest amount of the fentanyl. It's such a tiny amount that we have seen people go out when you say go out, I mean... I Overdose. <laughs> the reason? Fentanyl is faster acting and more powerful than heroin. And not just a little bit. Up to 50 times more potent. And because it's significantly cheaper to produce, it's an attractive cutting agent. That means dealers will mix it in, giving a small amount of heroin a bigger punch. Juicing up fake prescription pills. Nowadays... Fentanyl is mixed with just about any drug. Problem is this. If someone isn't expecting fentanyl, they can easily overdose. But it's instant. I mean, as soon as they hit, most of the time the rig is still in their arm. If not, you know, they're tied off or something. It happens fast. From alive to dead within seconds. Louise Vincent has heard too many of these stories as well. She's executive director of the North Carolina Urban Survivors Union and has dedicated her life to harm reduction, trying to make the use of drugs safer, like naloxone or Narcan, which can rescue someone from an overdose, as you are watching in this extraordinary video. Even better, though, preventing the overdose in the first place. It's just a little test strip. They're really easy to use them. Why are people testing them? Drug users care about their health because people don't want to die, because people don't want to be sick. Contrary to what everyone says, people that use drugs are human beings, and they want the same thing that every other human being wants. Giving users a chance to use safely has a long history of controversy. Is it saving lives or enabling even more drug usage? In the 1980s and 90s, it was often a debate about needle exchanges. More recently, it's been about consumption sites or safe spaces to use, like this bathroom in New York. And lately, it's about fentanyl test strips. Researchers will tell you that the evidence shows harm reduction works. The question that will always come up is, does this actually save lives? Does this prevent deaths? 
Do we know that? We don't know that yet, but what we are seeing is that people are using more safely. They're more aware of what's going on. John Zabel studies the impact of fentanyl test strips. What our study found is that people that with a positive test result after they tested their drug were five times more likely to change their behavior. Like using less of the drug, doing a test shot ahead of time, or maybe using with someone else who can watch them. Tanya credits the fentanyl strips for keeping her from overdosing as the drug supply has become progressively more and more dangerous. I think I use them more now than I did two years ago. We're at a greater risk for having unknown substances put into the drugs. With COVID came a treacherous, treacherous drug supply. And with that, technology has had to keep up as well. It's why Louise and her team are now working with Naburan Dasgupta from the University of North Carolina to utilize infrared spectroscopy. It's a tool from the world of forensics that can help distinguish specific components in the drug. It is rare to find a sample of a heroin that's a heroin. We may call it heroin. We may refer to it as heroin, but it usually isn't. Sometimes fentanyl analogs, um, mannitol, like other cutting agents, and then sometimes very dangerous chemicals. What we've seen more, more recently, especially during COVID, is big supply chain disruptions of the established cartels. And so you have a lot more experimentation, a lot more, uh, a lot of new chemical synthesis methods that are being used to manufacture the same end product that's all being called heroin or fentanyl. But what actually is in them has really changed. These machines may represent the future, but for now, they are costly. Just a handful of groups like Louise's around the country even have access to them, which is why fentanyl test strips are so important right now. What do you see there? That's your one line. See where it's yep. turning purple? So what does one line mean? It's positive. And if another line is not there, it's a negative. So this has fentanyl in it? Absolutely. This is fentanyl. So these strips, Jake, cost about a dollar a piece. That's what they cost. You can even buy them on Amazon. But at the same time, in some states around the country, they're still considered drug paraphernalia, such as the sort of gray nature of harm reduction. But that's where we are, people trying to make sure that their drugs are safe. Mm. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Donald Trump's top lieutenant spilling the beans on the former president lying about having tested positive for COVID before the first presidential debate. Another former Trump insider will join me next to this next to talk about what she knew. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead on Jake Tapper. This hour, a new report. His former chief of staff revealing that Donald Trump tested positive for COVID days before his first in-person debate with Joe Biden. And before Trump announced it to the world, we're going to talk to one top Trump White House official who was there. Plus, the U.S. Secretary of State warning Russia that there will be severe consequences if Russia takes even more aggressive action against Ukraine. And leading this hour, a case that could lead to the overturn of Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court today, hearing oral arguments over a Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The 1973 landmark decision by the Supreme Court, of course, had legalized abortions nationwide prior to viability around 23 weeks of pregnancy, according to the most recent legal precedent. 
Hundreds of protesters gathering outside the court today and inside the arguments are leading experts to believe that the conservative-leaning court will not uphold Roe v. Wade. This case could lead to the biggest Supreme Court decision in decades. As CNN's Jessica Schneider reports, the questions asked by the justices could provide hints as to what happens next. The reason this issue is hard is that you can't accommodate both interests. You have to pick. That's the fundamental problem. For the Supreme Court, six conservatives, they're questioning during two hours of arguments on Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban, signaling they're inclined to uphold the law. But if it really is an issue about choice, why is 15 weeks not enough time? The Chief Justice John Roberts seemed to be pushing for compromise. Let Mississippi enact its law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks with limited exceptions, but stop short of completely striking down Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1972 case that established women have a constitutional right to get an abortion. The Chief Justice emphasizing the importance of precedent. If we look at it from today's perspective, it's going to be a long list of cases that uh, we're going to say were wrongly decided. But the court's other conservatives repeatedly questioned why Roe should be upheld when the Constitution says nothing about abortion. That the Constitution's neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion. It is a case that could remake the legal landscape surrounding abortion in the United States. The arguments drew hundreds of protesters on both sides of the emotional debate to the steps of the Supreme Court. The stakes high as a dozen states have trigger laws on the books that would immediately ban abortions if the court overturns Roe. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? The three liberal justices railed against the possibility that conservatives could rule against Roe, saying it would call the court's legitimacy into question. To overrule under fire in the absence of the most compelling reason to re-examine a watershed decision would subvert the court's legitimacy beyond any serious question. All sides seem to be bracing for seismic change. Almost 50 years of the slaughter of innocent babies is too much. We're done. I um, am just full of angst that we could take this huge step backwards. And the two hours of questioning today points to that strong possibility that abortion rights will be rolled back by this court. And the impact here could be immediate. If the court limits their ruling and simply allows Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban to take effect, other states could write similar laws. But if the court overturns Roe v. Wade completely, abortion rights advocates estimate that half of the nation's states would act quickly to completely ban abortion. Jake? All right, Jessica Schneider, thank you uh, so much. Let's discuss all this. Uh, Carrie Cordero, let me start with you. Based on the questions asked today, it, it appears that the court's conservative justices uh, are leaning towards upholding the Mississippi uh, law, which would ban abortions after 15 weeks. It, it's less clear what this would mean, whether or not they overturn Roe versus Wade. What were your takeaways? Well, I think fundamentally this case is about whether or not American women are going to have less liberty in the 21st century than they did in the latter part of the 20th century. And the court is has the opportunity to either stick with its precedent over the last 50 years or come up with a reason to overturn it. And based on the arguments today, 
What was unclear is whether Mississippi is really bringing any new arguments to the table. It didn't sound to me like they were. And, and Joan Biskupic, you were inside the court today listening extra closely to a few key justices. What did they ask? Do we have an idea of which way they're leaning? It was so dramatic. You know, I, the justices weren't wearing masks. The rest of us were. And you could, you could see the weight of the moment on their faces. Uh, they divided in predictable ways with the more liberal justices wanting to keep Roe as is, the more conservatives wanting to get rid of it. I was surprised, Jake, about Brett Kavanaugh, who seemed very clear about want, thinking seriously about returning this whole matter to the states, which would essentially end the right to abortion overall. And there was a real struggle for whether there will be any kind of middle ground that won't exactly please anybody but will preserve some right to abortion, but it will not be the right that Americans know now. It mm. will not be the right that Americans know now. Katie Watson, a big picture. Uh, if the U.S. Supreme Court upholds this Mississippi law, this ban on abortions after 15 weeks, what could this mean for abortion rights nationwide? Well, I think the unspoken question of this case is whether women are people under the Constitution. And I think the only thing that Justice Kavanaugh got right, in, and it's in that quote that um, you played earlier, is the idea that you have to pick. And the reason you should pick women is because they are people under the Constitution, and embryos and fetuses are not. So in terms of changing this landscape from the viability standard, which is the only principled gestational line, and that's because it's the only line that accounts for the fact uh, the, the person in whom the relationship between the embryo or fetus and the person in whom it lives um, to pick 15 weeks. Uh, there's there's no logic behind that number. So that is an utterly unworkable standard and it reduces abortion rights significantly. And, and Joan, you were talking about an attempt to find a middle ground. Chief Justice Roberts maybe signaled that he was attempting to do something like that. Yes. Here's the deal. You've heard these references to fetal viability, which was at the center of Roe v. Wade right. and, and Casey. What the chief was suggesting, and he's probably the only one on the bench who thinks this, that you can actually lift that viability line but not overrule Roe. He was suggesting that the 15 week cut, a 15-week cutoff could be constitutional, which is what Mississippi has, but that he wouldn't roll back some right to abortion but what I believe, Jake, is that he's going to have to get, he would get the three liberals to agree at least that they wouldn't discard Roe wholesale. Mm -hmm. But he would, he's going to have to pick up someone from the conservative side, and that's where the, it's going to be very tricky. Someone who will say, now is not the time to completely eviscerate Roe v. Wade. And, and Carrie, what happens immediately if they just decide to overturn Roe v. Wade, which it's possible, honestly. I mean, if you listen to the arguments, it's quite possible. I, I don't think it's necessarily the probable decision, but it could happen. Uh, first in Mississippi and then in other states, what happens? So the impact of this case will have practical, real effects as soon as it is decided, because uh, as the earlier reporting described, there are statutes in over 25 states that would be triggered by a change and an overturning of Roe versus Wade and Casey. And so those state laws would then immediately go into effect, and that could immediately have the practical effect of limiting uh, women's access to a lawful abortion. Thanks to all. Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who we just discussed, he came to today's hearing 
armed with a list of precedents that the Supreme Court has overturned in the past. Kavanaugh sounded quite different in his confirmation hearing three years ago, of course. What would you say your position today is on a woman's right to choose? Well, as a judge... As a judge. As a judge, it is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. By it, I mean Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Been reaffirmed many times. Casey is precedent on precedent, which itself is an important factor. Hmm. His comments on Roe v. Wade led key Republican Senator Susan Collins to vote for Kavanaugh's confirmation. Here's Collins in 2018 speaking about her sit-down with Kavanaugh. We talked about whether he considered Roe to be settled law. He said that he agreed with what Justice Roberts said at his nomination hearing, in which he said that it was settled law. CNN's uh, Manu Raju joins us live. And Manu, there's no nice way to say this. Uh, Kavanaugh sounded very different on the subject of precedent today uh, than he did uh, when he was trying to get Susan Collins to vote for him. How did she respond to today's oral arguments? Well, she said she didn't see it. She told her colleague, Ali Zaslov, I did not see his questioning or hear any of the arguments. I hope to later tonight play them so that I have firsthand knowledge of what the arguments were today, but I can't comment on what I didn't see. Now, recall how critical Susan Collins was to the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. He was confirmed 50 to 48. There were three Republican senators whose votes were in play. One of them was Jeff Flake of Arizona. He sat on the Senate Judiciary Committee. He was one of the first to those three to say that he would vote yes. He voted for that. Lisa Murkowski, the Alaska Republican, she voted against Brett Kavanaugh. And all eyes at the time were on Susan Collins. Collins was listening to the testimony of Christine Blasey Ford, who accused Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault. Brett Kavanaugh, of course, denied that. She had meetings with Kavanaugh and talked about abortion because uh, Collins supports abortion rights. And those comments that she heard from Kavanaugh that he contended it to be, quote, settled law was significant, pivotal for Collins to ultimately vote yes. And ultimately, after she went to the Senate floor, said she would vote for Kavanaugh, that immediately after it may have triggered the support of a key Democratic senator, Joe Manchin, who said that he also would support Kavanaugh, who was narrowly confirmed by the Senate after that intense confirmation proceeding. But now in the aftermath of this, perhaps Kavanaugh could be a decisive vote striking down Roe. At that point, we'll see what Collins has to say. We'll check in with her also tomorrow, Jake, to see if she has listened to those comments and if her views on Kavanaugh have changed. All right, Manu Raju, thank you so much. How long did Donald Trump and the White House know that he may have had COVID before they told the world? We'll talk to a former Trump White House official next. Plus, the trial of the actor accused of faking a hate crime against himself. One witness says Jussie Smollett changed his description of the alleged attacker. Stay with us. In our health lead, it appears that the former president, rather notorious for lying, also lied about his coronavirus diagnosis. In a new book by former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, obtained by The Guardian newspaper, Meadows claims that Trump first tested positive on September 26. That was three days before his first debate with Joe Biden and nearly a week before Trump publicly acknowledged that he had, in fact, contracted the virus. On September 26, then-President Trump hosted a White House event, both inside and outside, for then-Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett. At least 12 attendees later tested positive. Later that day, 
Meadows says Trump was looking tired on their way to a rally in Pennsylvania when White House Dr. Sean Connolly called, saying that Trump had tested positive for COVID. Meadows says Trump was tested a second time, and that one came back negative. The next day, Trump hosted an indoor White House reception for Gold Star families, followed by a maskless news conference in the White House briefing room. Two days later, on September 28th, Trump hosted two outdoor events, one with business leaders, another on COVID testing. Then, of course, we had debate day, where Meadows reports Trump was moving slower than usual, but, quote, nothing was going to stop him from going out the coronavirus and was hospitalized. The former president responded to the new revelations today, calling them, quote, fake news, though we should note, again, this news comes from his loyal former chief of staff and his book, a book that Mr. Trump has previously endorsed as, quote, fantastic and a great Christmas present. Let's discuss this with former White House Communications Director under Trump, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, and Dr. Jonathan Reiner, the former physician to Vice President Dick Cheney and consultant to the Obama and Trump White House Medical Units. Alyssa, uh, congratulations on your wedding. Thank Thank you you for being here. So uh, reporters asked you and other White House officials multiple times about the timeline leading up to Trump's diagnosis. This is what your colleague Kaylee McEnany said, followed by something that you said. I'm not going to give you a detailed readout with timestamps of every time the president's tested. He's tested regularly. Um, I can't reveal that at this time. The doctors would like to keep it private since it's his private. My understanding is that it's his private medical history. So were you intentionally misleading the public on that or... Or was there something else going on that we don't know about? No, absolutely not. Jake, very few things shocked me, and this revelation shocked me. Um, I was getting inquiries from reporters. Credit to Maggie Haberman. I think she suspected that this may have been the case because she was hounding me for the timeline. So I went to Dr. Connolly. I went to Chief of Staff Meadows and said, when was his first test? When did he first pop positive? And I was told... We're not revealing that for HIPAA reasons. So that was the instruction I was given from our our chain of command. Um, But let me say this. Full stop, this demonstrates a flagrant lack of regard for public health and for the well-being of others. At this time in the White House, I had staffers who were pregnant. I had one who's a multi-time cancer survivor. We had plenty of people in in the West Wing who were over 65. We could have killed one of our colleagues. And instead, they decided to not tell anyone, putting every single one of us at risk. And but you didn't know, is the point. Oh, absolutely you, you, not. You didn't no, know. No, no, no. And Dr. Reiner, we don't know which kind of test the former president took when he got that positive result. But the second test he took was an antigen test. Is a negative result from an antigen test enough to clear somebody who had previously tested positive to go back into the public? No. But we know that the White House was relying heavily uh, on Abbott's rapid molecular PCR test, their ID now test. Uh, there was, you may remember, sort of towards the beginning of the, of the pandemic, there was a, a ceremony at the White House where Abbott delivered several of these machines for use. And this is how they screened uh, press and visitors to the White House with these rapid, uh, a relatively accurate PCR devices. So my, my strong guess is that the president's positive test came back with the ID now test, which takes about 15 minutes. And then according to the book, uh, they tried to stop the president from leaving, but he wanted to continue. And on board Air Force One, it appears he was tested with an antigen uh, Binax Now test. Now, the thing about the antigen test is yeah. that they have, although their ability to detect a, uh, to, to tell that you, you, that you don't have the virus is quite high. Their uh, ability to detect a positive test, particularly in patients at the beginning of their illness, is less good. And you would never verify a positive test with an antigen test. 
So the president was positive on the on the 26th. Yeah. And uh, the White House physician uh, knew it. What's astonishing to me is that the White House physician kept the fact that the president of the United States was positive for covid secret. Dr. Connolly, Sean Connolly, for, for three days, allowing multiple events, including the uh, uh, Amy uh, Coney Barrett event, yeah. the, the Gold Star family event and then the debate. Yeah, no, it's crazy. And when you think about Joe Biden is certainly in a vulnerable, vulnerable group. He's a, a man in his late 70s. Um, Alyssa, so here you have I mean, I can't even make sense of this. But Mark Meadows, who is a very loyal person to Donald Trump, he reveals this in his book. Trump calls it fake news, even though it's from Meadows' book. Uh, his spokeswoman, uh, Liz Harrington, uh, Trump's spokesperson, puts out this statement, and then Mark calling it fake news, and Mark Meadows retweets it. Can you explain this to us? Not really, but I will say this. The vast majority of the people working in the White House, especially around the task force under Trump, took COVID seriously. But there were a handful of senior, senior-most staff who genuinely thought it was nothing short of the common cold, even when we had over 150,000 Americans who had died at that time. And I think the fact that Mark published this suggests that he still thinks that. He doesn't seem to have reflected on the fact that this was a terrible move in how to handle this and that he absolutely should have disclosed to the public and quarantined the president. So that's what like makes me nervous about that whole orbit is they still seem to not get that this is a terrible, serious, deadly virus, and that this action was deeply reckless. Uh, and, and, I mean, we should just know, you talked about physician uh, Dr. Sean Connolly, who, at the very least, hid this from the public. Um, but when you think about people who are in vulnerable groups who met with Donald Trump, right? You talk about cancer survivors, a pregnant woman, Chris Christie, who contracted coronavirus, probably got it at that White House event. He's certainly in a vulnerable group. There are others I mean, isn't that a violation of, of Dr. Connolly's Hippocratic Oath? Exactly. Uh, Dr. Dr. Connolly has really two, in, in this instance, he has really two responsibilities. One is to, to do the right thing for his patient, which clearly at that first positive test is 10 days of isolation, 10 days of isolation after testing positive. And then his responsibility is to start contact tracing everyone the president has been with because everyone that the president might have infected might have infected someone else. This is how viruses work. And we've we've seen how this has gone for the last two years. So Dr. Conley had not just a responsibility to his patient, but he had a a responsibility to the public. And some communicable diseases are reportable as is COVID, which is why people get phone calls when they test positive and they are contact uh, traced. So he, uh, he just breached his duty yeah. as a physician. Now, if I were the White House physician and I was told, don't say anything about this, I would resign. Uh, why do you think Meadows is doing this now? Just to sell books? I don't understand. I think he thought that whole ordeal was not a big deal. Not a big deal. Part, that's my best just guess. Just that it was like, I don't think he would do anything that a would, funny story? Right, that would make President Trump angry with him, which he seems to be based on the statement. But let me just say this, because it bears repeating and we can't say it enough. It's never too late to do the right thing. Donald Trump should still go out and tell his supporters, I got the vaccine. My wife got the vaccine. My kids got the vaccine. You can trust it and it's safe. He's yet to do that. It could make a huge difference when half the country still isn't vaccinated. So maybe this will be a wake up call to him. And just so people know behind closed doors. Oh, we actually, we did this on Twitter. 
I got my booster and I'm advising you where to get your booster. These vaccines work. They're great. And Donald Trump was part. I mean, he, he you know, he okayed the funding credit, of it. Yeah. Operation Warp Speed. All right. Alyssa Farah Griffin. I'm going to get used to the Griffin. And Dr. Jonathan Reiner, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Coming up next, a messy feud between Republican lawmakers happening all in public view. And where is Kevin McCarthy? Where's the House leadership? And our politics lead, Republican leaders in the House are attempting to present a united front and encouraging their members to stay focused on the issues. This is a nasty civil war breaks out among Three House Republicans, lawmakers inside a closed-door Republican meeting this morning, tell CNN that Republican leader Kevin McCarthy did not say one word today about the nasty back and forth among Congresswomen Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Nancy Mace. Let's discuss. Let me start with the former Republican congressman at the table right here. One Republican lawmaker, uh, Congressman, uh, told CNN that McCarthy doesn't want to pour fuel on the fire, but it doesn't seem like his strategy of addressing this fight, all the fighting behind the scenes has done anything to calm the tensions. And to be quite frank, like, Congresswoman Mace is sane, and the other two I have more questions about. Yeah, there's no... They're certainly bigots. Yeah, there's no equivalence here. Yeah, Nancy Mace deals in reality. She's serious. She's thoughtful. And the other two are, you know, out of bounds. Uh, You know, I remember when John Boehner was speaker after the Tea Party wave. I can't tell you how many times he had conversations with members privately about conduct standards of conduct, language, uh, and he wouldn't tolerate it. I mean, he, and when people got in trouble, you saw some resign for far less. Uh, you know, you come into the office and see that letter on the desk. If it's true, you better sign it. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that we used to do. But now that these, a lot of these members don't feel shame. In fact, it's worse than that. They monetize mm-hmm. their, their notoriety. Uh, and, and I don't know how you control that, Jake, to be honest with you. But how do you – trying to maintain standards of conduct – uh, and enforce those is hard. And you know, I always chair of the ethics committee. That's like being head of internal affairs in the police department right. of Congress. Very it's popular. No fun. <laughs> right. uh, and you have a and it's no fun. But somebody's got to do it. Yeah. And and it's not being done. But that falls on the shoulders of the leaders. I saw Pelosi, Boehner, and Ryan deal with uncomfortable cases, forcing re- resignations of members for far less. But there's a old Boehner quote, and I know we've all heard it. it, it a le- if you're a leader. And no one's following you. You're just Taking a guy a taking a, a walk. walk. <laughs> and that is what's happening. I mean, that seems to be what's happening yeah. with Kevin McCarthy. They don't, he tells them to knock it off. And they either do kind of what you saw Congresswoman Boebert do this week and say, I'm so sorry, and then go about her business and do exactly what she was uh, what criticized for in the first place. Or they just don't listen to him at all. And they go, Marty Taylor Green called Trump. Uh, and talked to, to, about um, g- having a challenger to Nancy Mace this week. But Marjorie Taylor Greene says she is the mainstream of the base of the Republican Party. She's not some extremist. And the truth of the matter is I don't know if that's right. No offense. Congress. Yeah. Uh, listen, I mean, part of the reason Kevin McCarthy doesn't want to act is because he's afraid of Donald Trump and he's also afraid of the base. And uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, as, as well as Boebert, are pleasing uh, Donald Trump and getting all sorts of uh, kudos from uh, other members of the, the base and other members of the party because of what uh, they've said. I think one of the problems in the Republican Party, uh, and I'm quoting Colin Powell here, there is a dark vein of intolerance in the party, right? And it used to be smaller. You saw Donald Trump, t- Donald Trump tap into that in 2016. 
uh, and is, it keeps going back to that well. And you see these other uh, members being able to monetize uh, this bigotry, uh, and it pays dividends for them in terms of popularity and actual fundraising as well. And Hillary, uh, Republican Congressman Don Bacon, he represents a swing district uh, in Nebraska, the Omaha area. He said this about the infighting. Take a listen. We're trying to show that we're the, we're, we want to be the governing party uh, next November, mm-hmm. uh, going into January of 23. And what, that requires winning people's confidence. And I think, and right now, all the polling is great for us, but this undermines that effort of taking back the speaker's gavel. We should not be shooting ourselves in the foot with infighting. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not appropriate. Do you think it actually will hurt Republicans, though? You know, one of the things that happens when you're not in charge, actually, is you don't actually have to be too responsible. Mm-hmm. You can spend a lot of energy just attacking the other guys and playing games like they're playing. So whether or not this matters. They're attacking each other, though. I mean, they're, they're not even attacking Democrats. Right. And, and, you know, the fact is there is there is no more Republican Party for Nancy Mace in the in the House. Like that that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, there is no there is no caucus that supports a Republican voting their district on an infrastructure bill or on a, you know, a belief about a big lie. And 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 that is. That is a, a, a sad state of affairs, but as a practical matter, you know, they're going to nationalize this message in the midterms, and I don't think this internal fight is going to matter as much as whether Democrats are delivering and, and talking about the things that people care about. Congressman, you're, you're from the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and so I have to ask, TV personality Dr. Oz uh, has officially entered the race for Senate uh, as a Republican. Uh, he has huge name recognition. In fact, I think they took him off the air uh, in, in the Philly area just because of the, of the equal time clause. But for me- medical experts have criticized him significantly in the past few years for pushing hydroxychloroquine, uh, for uh, peddling all sorts of magic diet pills and miracle cures. But he might be a strong candidate. Uh, he might be, but I think he's got a little carpetbagger problem. Uh, when I, Just because he doesn't actually live in Pennsylvania? <laughs> yeah, that's not a small... He's in Bergen County, New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, when I first ran for Congress in 2004, I ran against a guy who was not from my district, never lived there. It was an 80% issue. I talked about nothing else other than his residency. How can you possibly represent a constituency if you don't live there, if you don't know them? So I think that's going to be a bigger issue for him than he realizes. Uh, and so I, I find the whole thing bizarre uh, apparently, he's uh, registered to vote at his mother-in-law's home in Montgomery County. Montgomery County, yeah, yes, and, uh, where my pop lives. Yes. So, um, but what do you think? I mean, he, he, again, name recognition can go a long way yeah. uh, in a primary and certainly in a general election. I just don't know why he wants to go back to the Senate. Last time he was there, uh, Claire McCaskill just really... Yeah. Uh, she eviscerated Reams him. She yeah. eviscerated him. That is a very nice word. for That, that was not going through my head. Uh, but it, uh, over, for being a, his, for, over his for, diet. For being for a quack. Quackery. For being for for quackery. alleged quackery. Yeah. And it, it just, you know, um, but in this country, even a snake oil salesman can uh, be a politician. So isn't that? <laughs> Where have we seen that? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, and that's what he's really trying to do. Hugging Donald Trump, really going for Donald Trump's uh, endorsement. I think we saw from the Virginia race, that gubernatorial race, that hugging Donald Trump might not be the best option if you want to win uh, statewide, as well as you really need to be well-versed in local issues. You're not from Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz. You're a great surgeon, I'm sure. Um, but in terms of the kind of day-to-day 
and ins and outs of folks in Pennsylvania, I don't know that he's going to really be able to. Oh, that's and look, we love people to... from New Jersey, don't we, Congressman? <laughs> hey, hey. They're great, put, they're great drivers. Down New Jersey. <laughs> but, but the idea of someone like this succeeding, someone girl. like Pat Toomey, who is Pennsylvania, yeah. I mean, yeah. through and through. And, it just, and Casey. But, and but Casey, it is kind of a head scratcher. This seat is open because Pat Toomey was going to be facing a tough re-election um, in large measure. And so you do have to think about this hugging Donald Trump strategy that's right. going way to the right is not where Pennsylvania is generally as a whole. You know, it went it went for Biden. It's it's elected Democrats statewide. It's the governors. Um, all, you know, I think that that they're going to have trouble running a Trump campaign. In, I don't know. I would describe I would. Yeah, Trump won it in 2016. I would describe it as a purple state. I mean, yeah, what, what, I, I think statewide, actually, in some respects, it's getting better for Republicans. I mean, just. In 2020, the statewide row offices, Auditor General and Treasurer, with two Republicans who are good candidates, but no, they had no money. They beat incumbents. Yeah, Republicans. Trump was losing the state by 81,000 votes. Republicans by, did great know. in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, except for Donald Trump, except it, it, for some reason, none of those Republicans who were reelected uh, that same day had any issue with the ballots uh, that elected them. And in a midterm like, like this, you know, this should be a good Republican year for a Republican Senate candidate. Should be, as long as the candidate. Isn't you know, Dr. Oz. Isn't Dr. Oz <laughs> or Sean maybe. Parnell or someone else. Thanks for all yeah, being, for, we'll for being here. Appreciate it. Today, the Secretary of State <laughs> delivered a warning to Russia's Vladimir Putin. We're going to talk to the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO next. Stay with us. And our world lead setting the stage for an invasion. That is exactly what U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken warns Russia is currently doing as Russia significantly increases its military presence along the border with Ukraine. Now, we don't know whether President Putin has made the decision to invade. We do know that he is putting in place the capacity to do so on short order should he so decide. So despite uncertainty about intentions and timing, We must prepare for all contingencies while working to see to it that Russia reverses course. Here to discuss retired admiral and the former NATO Supreme Allied Commander James Stavridis. Uh, He's the author of the new book, The Sailor's Bookshelf, 50 Books to Know the Sea. Admiral, good to see you again. Do you agree with Secretary of State Blinken? Russia appears to be on the verge of invading Ukraine. I do, Jake. You know, we always say crime is where motive meets opportunity. The motive is pretty clear here. Putin truly, deeply wants to pull Ukraine away from the West, away from NATO, away from the European Union. That's the motive. Uh, The opportunity is exactly what Tony Blinken was talking about. There are 90,000 troops on that border. He's actively seeking to undermine the government of President Zelensky. Uh, reports of a potential coup. And finally, Jake, you got to look at the history here. He invaded Georgia in 2008, still Russian troops there. He invaded Ukraine, annexed Crimea in 2014. A lot of Russian troops there. So opportunity, motive, and history kind of come together. I'm worried. So NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg told my colleague Jim Shudo earlier today that NATO can make Russia pay a high price for its aggression with, quote, economic sanctions, financial sanctions, and political restrictions. Um, Of course, as you just noted, he's done this already. He he took Georgia. uh, He took Crimea. Um, Why aren't they doing these sanctions already? And and would they work? Um, I think uh, there is another 
a level of sanctions that we could uh, think about. One would be to, Jake, personalize them, go after very senior leaders, potentially all the way up to Vladimir Putin himself. Uh, number two, at the end of the day, as John McCain used to say, uh, Russia is only a big gas station. Its economy is a one-trick pony, oil and gas. I think you could move sanctions there, although complicated because of Nord Stream 2 coming online. Um, and I think thirdly, uh, Putin wants his athletes to go to the Olympics. That's an obvious one. Um, so hopefully Putin will not be as reckless as he's been on a couple occasions, but it's pretty hard to rule that out. So Secretary Blinken set to meet with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov tomorrow. What message do you think he should deliver to get the Russians to stand down, to not invade Ukraine, to not support a coup against uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky? Uh, I think there are three things he can say quite credibly. One is, if you do this, it will not be you versus Ukraine. It will be you versus the world in terms of opinion and then deliver the economic sanctions message. Number two, he can say NATO, the 30 nations of NATO are deeply opposed to this. We're going to continue to press against you in every dimension, including, for example, cyber activity. Uh, so that allied component, I think, is significant. Um, and then a third thing is to uh, to say to uh, the, the Russian foreign minister, who he knows quite well, I know him quite well, um, you're making an enormous mistake here if you underestimate what our response will be. He's got to look him in the eye and deliver that message credibly. Do you think that this situation could credibly grow into a military conflict between Russia and NATO? I think it's a, a very low probability of that occurring. I think that the dark end of the spectrum, the worst case, is Putin becomes reckless. He goes in. He actually carves out a chunk and, and simply claims the Donbass, the area in the uh, southeast corner, creates a land bridge between Crimea and Russia, which he seeks to do. I think that's probably the extent of military action. But then you're really on a, a rocket ride back to a, a true Cold War between the United States and Russia. He doesn't want that. He can't afford it. And I think that, therefore, it's not likely he'll make the ultimate move here. But again, I'll close by saying, Jake, um, history, motive, opportunity. He's put all the pieces in play. Let's hope he shows restraint. All right. Admiral James DeVritis, thank you for your time. Congrats on the book. Coming up next, the trial of Empire actor Jussie Smollett. What detectives said on the stand about the alleged hate crime he had committed against himself. Stay with us. International lead, big developments on day three of the trial of actor Jussie Smollett, accused by police of staging a fake racist and homophobic attack against himself in 2019. Prosecutors today calling one of the most significant witnesses in the case, one of the two brothers who police say Smollett paid to stage the attack. CNN's Omar Jimenez is live outside the courtroom in Chicago for us. And Omar, you've been inside listening to the testimony. Uh, what is he saying? Well, this is the most crucial day of testimony we've seen so far in this trial. So this is Abimbola Osundero, otherwise known as Bola. And the crux of it began when he described being in the car with Jesse Smollett days before this alleged hate crime took place and described that Smollett asked him to beat him up. And I'll read some of the testimony here to where uh, Bola said he was confused 
Then he, Jesse Smollett, explained he wanted me to fake beat him up. I agreed to do it because, most importantly, I felt indebted to Jesse. At the time, Bola was working as a stand-in on the show Empire and, and had developed a friendship with Jesse Smollett over the good portion of two years prior to this week of January 25th, 2019. He told me we would need another person to fake beat him up, and he mentioned, could my brother be a part of it? And that's how the second Oshindero brother got involved. And after the two eventually, or after everyone got in the car, they went over the details of what Jesse Smollett wanted them to say and do. Again, according to the testimony, and it literally says, or I should say Oshindero said, that they wanted him to say Empire, the show he used to be a, uh, a star on, the F word, the homophobic slur, the N word, and MAGA, Then the conversation moved to what they wanted him to do specifically, to punch him in the face, but to pull those punches so that he wouldn't get actually hurt, but to leave at least a bruise, Jake. So, again, the heart of this trial playing out in testimony today. And Omar, prosecutors also called today a Chicago detective who spoke with Smollett shortly after the alleged attack in a subsequent interview. What did he say about the inconsistencies in Smollett's story? That's right, Jake. So this was one of two detectives who initially responded to Jesse Smollett's report of an alleged hate crime on January uh, 29th, 2019. And this detective said at the time he described his one attacker that he could identify as a white person that he could see through the eye holes, the bridge of the nose and part of the eyes. Well, weeks later, after these Oshindero brothers had been arrested, though Smollett didn't explicitly know that at the time, he was asked again about the identity of his attackers. And the detective said, well, this time he said they acted like they were white. And that was a discrepancy the detective took issue with, though the defense tried to say that the detective's words weren't as credible because that interview was not recorded, Jake. Mm. Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. Coming up next, actor Alec Baldwin giving his first interview since that deadly movie shooting, saying that he never pulled the trigger. More from the emotional interview. That's next. Back now with our pop culture lead, Alec Baldwin, sitting down for the first time to talk about that fatal shooting on the film set of Rust, the actor revealing more about what happened to ABC News and growing emotional when speaking about Helena Hutchins, who was killed. It wasn't in the script for the trigger to be pulled. Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So you never pulled the trigger? No, no, no. no. I, I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. She was someone who was loved by everyone who worked with and liked by everyone who worked with and admired. Baldwin's side of the story comes as investigators have a new lead on how that live bullet may have gotten on set. Authorities were granted a warrant to search a prop store where they believe some of the rounds originated. They're investigating various scenarios on how that live ammo made it on set. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.